Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. The text that is before us this week has Jesus quoting from Exodus 3, verse 6, which part of which is then repeated later on in the book of Exodus, um, chapter 3, in verse 15, and again in verse 16. Today, as I'm recording for the podcast, I'm going to read Exodus 3, verse 1, I'm going to keep reading, and I'll stop at some point. I thought I knew when I was going to stop, but now I don't. And I don't know why I'm rambling now, but that's okay. Exodus 3. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses... Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, Surely I have seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh 
and I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, Certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Go, and gather the elders of the Israel together, and say unto them, the Lord, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you, and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And naturally, I could keep going. What is significant is that this is a statement of God revealing his name, the name Yahweh, a name that realistically means he is. And he explains what it means in verse 14 by saying, I am that I am, I am hath sent me unto you. And while it's tempting to see the word I am, and I am what I am, and then think immediately about the reality that God is in fact absolute being, I think it's more significant that the same form of I am, ayah, was used in Exodus 3.12 in the promise of Yahweh's presence with Moses. Certainly, I will be with thee. The whole book of Exodus could really have as a theme this idea of God's presence with his people, such that it concludes with 16 chapters that are mostly focused on constructions for and the actual building of the tabernacle, the place in which God comes to dwell. Yahweh, God is present with his people even present with his people to deliver them. And this is something that then is particularly reminded of in regard to the fact that he is Yahweh, the God of your fathers. He is Yahweh, the I Am, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He has always been present with his people. 
and indeed, he always will be. Good morning. You can turn again in your Bibles this time to Matthew chapter 22, where we'll be looking at verses 23 to 33 today. In the passage before us last week, the Pharisees came to Jesus, hoping to entangle him, hoping to trap him in his speech. But he showed that he is not so easily trapped. That he looks past their appearances and into their heart and gives them an answer that doesn't actually cause him to infuriate everyone. But that is true. That shows loyalty to Caesar, loyalty to God, are not always at odds. Then he keeps going. The text of Matthew keeps going. And it's no longer the Pharisees that come, but the Sadducees. And again, we see that the wisdom of God in the flesh the wisdom of God incarnate cannot be tricked or trapped. Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, there were with us seven brethren. And the first, when he had married a wife, deceased. And having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also. And the third, unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Father God, you are the God of the living. You are the God of those who live, not of those who are dead. 
Indeed, you are the living God and the source of all life. Today we come to you asking that you would lead us in this text and that by your spirit you would cause us to rejoice in your son. And like the multitudes at the end of this passage, that we would be astonished and marvel at his wonderful wisdom and doctrine. Help us today to see your son above all. Not to see any distractions, not to see the man up here speaking, but the person and the being of whom I am speaking. The person of Jesus Christ and the being of you, the triune God. May that be who we see today. And I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, your Son, God himself. Amen. Like last week's passage, we're looking at this in three headings of the test, the answer, and the response. And we begin with the test of the Sadducees, verses 23 through 28. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased. And having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Matthew begins this particular test by showing some reality of connection to the previous one. It's the same day that they're coming to him, and indeed they're going to call him the same thing, Master. It's what the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians said in verse 16, and what the Sadducees say in verse 24. He also hints at the manner of the question that's going to come by highlighting that the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. They deny the supernatural, in particular in this text, they deny the supernatural aspect of resurrection. They don't anticipate a future day in which the faithful of God's people raise again to newness of life. They don't anticipate a time in which those who had died believing that the Messiah would come would be able to appreciate and live in that messianic 
age. And so with them not believing in the resurrection, they come and they set up a scenario. They remind Jesus of what Moses said. They, in this kind of paraphrase and combine Deuteronomy 25.5, the passage that describes the legal provision regarding a brother marrying his wife, to raise up seed and continue on the name. As well as Genesis 38.8, the time before the law in which such an occurrence happened. And they explain to Jesus what Jesus, of course, already knows. That Moses commanded that if a man is married and he dies, it is his brother's responsibility to marry and to raise up seed. Indeed, in some sense, that's the only resurrection they believe in. The resurrection of the dead seed. The resurrection of the dead name. The only way in which you live after you die, according to the Sadducees, is the fact that your name continues on. And then they paint Seven brothers, and the oldest, the first, he marries a wife. But he dies. He doesn't leave any seed. He has no issue. Term issue translating a word meaning seed. He did not become a father. And so the second fulfills the role, goes in unto his wife, but also dies. And the third does the same. And the fourth. And the fifth. And the sixth. And the seventh. And finally, the woman dies herself. You know, in a couple examples that we have within the Old Testament of this type of marriage of a close relative marrying the wife of his brother or close relative, it's never looked upon with much favor. In the passage of Genesis 38.8, Onan, the one who was to fulfill that role, refused to do it, and so ended up dying because of that. And then the more famous example of it in the book of Ruth, Boaz is only able to accomplish that only able to marry this close relative's wife because someone closer than he refused. So you almost wonder why all these six kept doing it. Kept engaging in the marriage. See, my, my dad used to always look at this text and have a little bit of a, a joking about how he would have refused. I think he has something right. Because it seems that as seven husbands die, this woman is either cursed or really good at poison. And I think the Sadducees want us to think about that in terms of how ridiculous it seems. 
I think their goal in getting to the question and this setup is not just to question whether the resurrection is present or real, but to make it look ridiculous. To poke fun at it and make it into a joke. So then they ask their question. Verse 28. In the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. I can almost sense the smugness on their face as I read the text. Equivalent of the first century mic drop. What are you going to do now, Jesus? Whose wife is she going to be? They all had her. And so then Jesus' answer comes in. in verses 29 to 32. Verses 29 to 32. Remind us this. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus answers them. He says they're wrong. He says they're erring. He says they're straying from the truth. And he says that they're doing that because they do not know the scriptures and they do not know the power of God. They spend all of their time as some of the religious elites in Israel studying the word of God and studying the scriptures. But Jesus says they don't know it. They don't understand it. And not only that, but they don't know the power of the one whose word it is. They might have a form of godliness, but they've denied the power thereof. They don't have an understanding of the great person, the great being that they worship. And as he explains those two reasons for why they stray, he then further clarifies it by jumping in to what they misunderstand about the power of God in verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God 
There's a hurdle of some kind. And the Sadducees know it. A subtle way in which they put God into a box. It's not about the resurrection. It's not about new creation. And they assumed it would have to look exactly like what they knew, yet without sin. There's marriage here, and it's one man and one woman, so there'll be marriage in the resurrection, it's one man and one woman. That's the box they put God into doing. And when he recreated the world, it would look as it does, yet without sin. They emphasize the continuity between this creation and the new creation. In many ways, that's the exact opposite error of what we tend to have in our current day. We so emphasize the discontinuity that it looks so different that it won't even be recognizable to us. But here they're assuming that if God's going to remake the world, he's going to remake it as he's already made it. Jesus says that's not what God's power is going to do. God can and will remake a world better even than Eden. Better even than this world was before sin. To really hit at it. To really point us in that direction. The Sadducees and Jesus' conversation with them talks about marriage. One of the greatest blessings that we know in this creation. A blessing that in fact is stated as directly pertaining and picturing the love of Christ for his church and the relationship of the church and Christ together. Without this text, if we were to be asked if there would be marriage in the new creation, I don't think there would be very many people who would say there wouldn't be. We rightly value it and cherish it. We rightly think that it's not good for man to be alone. Then again, the resurrection man wouldn't be alone. Marriage is the foundation stone of community here. It's the first institution. It's the bedrock institution. Nothing else really can exist without it. But in the beautiful resurrection community, marriage becomes unnecessary. Because every relationship is that pure and beautiful. Community will be as it should have been. One commentator explains it like this. Jesus' point is that when interpersonal relationships are perfected among the company of the redeemed, all human interaction 
will be as loving and rewarding as the best of human marriages in this life. So it will no longer be necessary or appropriate to speak of any believer as being uniquely married to one other person. You know, in the world we live in, there's sometimes conversations made about the fact that we're in a loneliness epidemic. And people who point that out also tend to point out the fact that the trend started in 2012 and then were maximized in 2020. That though COVID may have accelerated it, COVID didn't cause it. We seem to live in a world where it's easy to become isolated. Where sometimes we feel it's safer to be isolated. We don't always know we can trust the people around us. Those types of realities will not be present or a concern within the resurrection. The community will be beautiful and perfect. And there will be true peace of fellowship one with another as we have peace with God. And we, as a church today, are supposed to resemble that and mimic it and be a safe place for other believers, a place to belong, and a place to feel loved, not avoided. To feel loved and not judged. To feel loved and to be in positive fellowship of forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus has directed us to the power of God. Jesus directs the fact that there is supernatural. And he directs us to challenge the box that he will remake the world in comparison to what it already is. The one who raised Christ from the dead has something better for those of us who trust that he has done so. And to trust in the death of Christ is our only hope. He has a beautiful resurrection community. And then Jesus continues his answer, looking at how the Sadducees misunderstand Scripture. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Again, 
Jesus is interested in the reading habits, the reading habits of his opponents who are supposedly learned in the scriptures. And so he directs them to what they've read, and he directs them to authority they should accept, to a passage founded in the first five books of Moses. But whereas they say Moses said to us, Jesus directs them to the fact that it was spoken unto them by God. Challenges the authority of whether it's going to be Moses or God. Ultimately, since Moses is an inspired writer, there's no real conflict between them. But they read the scriptures without reading and thinking about the power of God. And he reminds them that this scripture these words are given to us by God. And indeed, he makes another bold claim in two words in verse 31. It was spoken by God unto you. Within the text of Exodus, God is speaking to Moses. Within the book of Exodus, we often consider it to have been written to the people of Israel at that time. But Jesus says that God spoke it, not to Moses, not to that initial audience, but directly to the Sadducees. There's a certain sense in which the intended audience of every biblical book is whoever will pick it up and read it. And it's written, indeed, still today, unto us. And then there's the statement. I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's particularly Exodus 3, 6. It's also alluded to twice right after the revelation of God's divine name, Yahweh. I am who I am. But he is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, if you were to explain where the resurrection is within the Old Testament, where the hope of the resurrection comes, my first instinct would not be to go to Exodus 3.6. My instinct would go to a valley of dry bones in Ezekiel. My instinct would go to Daniel 12, which talks about the resurrection of the body, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting condemnation. My impulse would even go to the language of Hosea about how the people would be raised up on the third day. But Jesus understands the scripture better than I do. Jesus understands the scripture better than any of us do or will. And he points to this text and then says, God is not the God of the dead of the living. 
the covenant God. The one whose name describes him as present with his people. The God who is the source of all life isn't the God of the dead. There's no praise from the grave, no praise from Sheol. He's the God of those who live, even if they have already died. Even if this earthly body is destroyed, he's still the God of the living. He's a currently the God of people who are already dead. It's what he describes. And thus, if he's currently their God, and they must not be dead in the final sense. Since Exodus 3 focuses so much on God's presence, in fact, the whole book of Exodus focuses so much on God's presence with his people. It's hard to be present with someone who's already dead. Away from the body, present with the Lord. In light of the fact that that's not the way we would have parsed it out, in light of the fact that that's not a connection we would probably have ever made on our own, can challenge us to study deeper, and should, but also challenges us to recognize with the crowd in verse 33, marvel, amazement, and awe. The response in verse 33, and when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. They heard it. They saw it. They see that Jesus knows the power of God and the scripture better than his opponents. And all they can do is stand in amazement. His understanding of the resurrection is not open to ridicule. Instead, it's open to awe and wonder. If we go back to our scoreboard, it's now pretty clearly Jesus 2 and the Pharisees and Sadducees 0. He knows his stuff. He, the wisdom of God, will not be tricked or trapped. He knows the scriptures. And he knows the power of God. Have you ever paused to truly consider all that we gain in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Have you ever sat back and recognized God made the world perfect? We as men sinned, which was not an impersonal thing. 
When we sin, we sin against God, the source of all life. We sin against God, the source of all blessing, and we tell him that he's not enough for us. We spit in his face and in some sense cut him off. And in so doing, we cut ourselves off from life as we cut ourselves off from the source of all life. And then while we are cut off from him, while we are his enemy, hostile and alienated from him, still dramatically spitting in his face, he sent his son. God himself died on a cross, bearing the wrath against sin. Preparing the wrath against the injustice we have done to God. And raising again on the third day. Defeating death. Defeating sin. Defeating the devil. And beckoning for us to come. To be reconciled to God. To come and to believe in Jesus and his death as our only hope, to turn from our sin, to turn from trying to do anything on our own. And to have now that communion with the Lord and communion with his people and anticipation of the day of the resurrection. God is the God of the living God is always present with his people. God remakes a world and remakes a community better than it ever was before. God. God is the gospel. God is the reward of the gospel. And in that reward, we also get Easter. So Jesus understands. So Jesus points us to. So the wisdom of God and the word of God reminds us of this great benefit and shows that nothing that God does is ever open to ridicule. Never truly open to it anyway. It shows us that he himself cannot be tricked, cannot be trapped, and is worthy of all of our worship, all of our marveling and astonishment. He's worthy of us singing out the wonderful beauties of his knowledge and grace. For who can search out his way? Father, Father, help us to worship you through your Son. Help us to rejoice in what he has accomplished for us. And help us just as well to rejoice in his own person. Lord, direct us. Guide us. 
Lead us to this community and help us now to enjoy to enjoy the fact that we don't need to be isolated or lonely, not just because you are with us, but because there are other followers of you genuinely seeking to worship you that we fellowship with. I pray, Lord, that you would make us all more and more genuine. And I pray, Lord, in the name of your Son, Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>